Okay, well, it's so great to have all of you guys here. Uh, open up your Bibles to Mark 12, 28 through 34. Mark 12, 28 through 34. If you're joining us here for the first time, we always put up the passage on the screen right behind me. So we want to encourage you to bring your Bibles, but if you forgot, then that's okay. It's not going to be devastating. And then if you join us online, you'll see the passage on the screen. But Mark 12, 28 through 34, this is God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for that beautiful time of worship. And we thank you most of all for your presence. You are here. You are with us. And we want to hear from you, Lord God. Lord God, your voice is loud and clear in the pages of scripture. And your spirit brings that alive and places that into our hearts like a good seed, and I pray that everybody here will receive the seed of your word today, that we would not miss what you have to say to us. So, Lord God, we thank you. We give you all the glory. Speak, Lord God. We are here to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. It's wonderful to see all of you guys after a very eventful Easter weekend. It was glorious uh, worshiping together last week. And if you're a visitor here from last week and you came back, then praise God. We hope you can continue to join us. We hope you can find out more about who we are and what God is doing here. So I encourage you, uh, please come back. Uh, continue to come back. Get connected. Ryan mentioned earlier, fill out a connect card. That's just a very simple and easy way to get plugged in. But we welcome you if you're back from last week. Well, today we're going to pick up where we left off in our disciple series. So I know we've been taking some different breaks here and there. Easter was a big one. But we've been in this series since the beginning of the year. But we've been looking at what a disciple is and what a disciple does from the Gospel of Mark. And this is what we've seen so far. So I need to review this because you guys probably forgot everything. But first, we saw how a disciple is a student, a follower of Jesus' teachings and way of life. That's what a disciple is. It's very simple. It is a student and follower of Jesus' teachings and way of life. And so with that definition, this means all of us are already disciples of something and someone. So this shouldn't be foreign to us. But you are a disciple, whether it's an expert in your field, uh, a professor at school, your parents, but you are being discipled by somebody and something. We are all disciples. But here's the key question. But are you a disciple of Jesus? You're here at church, right? You call yourself a Christian. Well, are you a disciple of Jesus? And being a disciple of Jesus is hands down the greatest thing you will do with your life. You don't need to worry about, oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to make a difference? You 
will if you are a disciple of Jesus. It is the most transformative thing you will do with your life. It's the greatest way that you will impact others with your life. How many of you guys want to make a difference in other people's lives? Well, become a disciple of Jesus. So are you a disciple of Jesus? We also saw how the gospel is what makes us into disciples. So this is not something you just go out and just decide to do one day. What I mean by that is a person can only become Jesus' disciple by repenting and believing in the gospel. You must first hear the good news, receive it in your heart, trust in it. The good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save you from your sins. You must hear and receive that good news. And when you do, and you turn from your sins, then you will become alive to God. And you will enter this reality called the kingdom of God. It is a whole new way of living, a whole new reality where God's will is done in your life. And that's what a disciple is. You begin to know and do God's will in your life. So the gospel is what makes you into a disciple. So these are all things we saw. Let me just run through the rest. We also saw who Jesus calls to be a disciple. Who does he call? Well, he calls everyone, but especially the nobodies in the world. And that was clear in Mark's gospel. The unremarkable, the undeserving. But these are the people that God calls, and so that should be very encouraging to all of us. So if you feel like a nobody, God is calling you. If you feel like you have nothing to offer, God is calling you. We can all be disciples. We also saw how the disciples' most vital connection is to Jesus. Amen? So Jesus was very unusual, but when he called people to himself, he didn't call people to a book or a set of teachings or to a school. That's what other rabbis or disciples did. But he called his disciples to himself. In other words, he is the curriculum. Right? He's the school. He's the book that you're going to learn is Jesus. And so more than any other relationship, it is your relationship to Jesus that is key in being a disciple. Right? Being with Jesus is how you're going to learn and grow and change is how you will be a disciple. Okay, we also saw what makes a disciple set apart from everyone else. Okay, what makes a disciple so unique and different from the world? What makes you set apart to God? It is daily denying yourself taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Okay, that's what is so different about a disciple from everyone else. Okay, what else? We saw the disciples imparted gifts. There are gifts that God has for you if you become his disciple. And the reason he gives you gifts is because being a disciple is very hard, right? Take up your cross, die to myself daily. It can become very confusing at times. And so Jesus, knowing that, As our good shepherd, he will take you high up a mountain and he will impart unimaginable gifts to us. These are gifts that are beyond words, but gifts like an enduring faith, really trusting in him. He will give you that gift. His manifest presence and glory, like when the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God descended upon them. Jesus will do that. The eternal gospel, God will proclaim that again into your heart. The gospel that not only saves you, but changes you. And then finally, divine authority. He will give you the authority to do his will. So these are all amazing gifts that Jesus will give you. Why? Because you're his disciple. So what else? We also looked at the disciples' obedience. Trusting and following Jesus will always result in obeying Jesus. That's what disciples do. What do disciples do? They obey Jesus. They follow his teachings. 
And then finally, for the last several weeks uh, before Easter, heading to Easter, we looked at the spiritual disciplines of a disciple. Some people call these habits of grace. These are daily activities that disciples do, not to change themselves, not to earn God's favor, but to do what? You guys should know by now. Put yourself in the path of God's grace. Put yourself under the waterfall of God's grace. And as you do that day in and day out, then you will be changed. Okay, we're talking about activities like prayer, reading the word, fellowshipping with other believers, and there are many more. But as you do these regularly, habitually, you will be changed. Okay, these are the spiritual disciplines of a disciple. So basically in five minutes right there, maybe a little longer, <laughs> we covered the entire year. That's been the entire year, every sermon that we've talked about for the entire year. And hopefully by now you can see how all-encompassing being a disciple is. It is total. Okay, this is way more than somebody just ca- coming to church here and there and calling themselves a Christian. But in the early church, these were the only kinds of people who belonged to the church, disciples. Nobody was called a Christian in the early church. But everybody was either a disciple of Jesus or they weren't. But disciples of Jesus, this is a total way of life. It is all-encompassing. It is knowing, trusting, and following Jesus. And again, there's nothing like it in the world. Like I said earlier, being Jesus' disciple will have the greatest impact on your life. It will also make the greatest impact through your life. You know, Ronald Reagan said this one time. For you younger people, Reagan was a U.S. president. (laughs) But he said some people spend an entire lifetime wondering if they made a difference in the world. The Marines don't have that problem. Okay, that might be true. My dad was actually in the Air Force. My brother was in the Army, so I know a little bit about the military. But far more than that, this is the way I would put it. Some people spend an entire lifetime wondering if they made a difference in the world. Disciples of Jesus don't have that problem. Amen? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you don't have to wonder, am I going to make a difference with my life? Is it going to count? Am I going to do something with my life? Every single day you will wake up and you will do something with your life. You are following Christ. You are making an impact around others for Christ. You have God's life in you. Christ is in you. Christ is working through you. You are a disciple of Christ. So here's the question again. Are you? Are you a disciple of Jesus? So that is the question throughout this entire series. I want us to think about that. I want us to take it seriously. So with that, today we're going to look at our second to last message in the series. So we are going to wrap it up next week. But today I want to look at the disciples' love. The disciples' love. And the reason why this is so important, and I kind of saved it towards the end, until the end, is out of all the characteristics of a disciple, Jesus chose love as the defining mark of a disciple. He could have picked anything, right? But he chose love as the defining mark. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. We should perk up. What are you going to say? How are people going to know we're your disciples if you have love? And then he went on to talk about love for one another and then also love for him. But if you have love. And in the context of that passage in John 13, Jesus was not talking about romantic love or parental love. Those are the two loves that are talked about by far the most today in our culture. It is written about the most, saying about the most. Pretty much every single person here in one form or another You're thinking about, I know, you're thinking about, you're seeking out, you're struggling with one of those two loves, romantic love or parental love. 
Okay, it's on your mind. This is what you're dealing with. This is what people are always thinking about. And as important as those two loves are, that is not the love Jesus is talking about here. So then what kind of love is the defining mark of being his disciple? Well, I just said it. It is love for Christ, him, and love for one another. In other words, it is love for a God you did not know. You weren't seeking him. You didn't love him already. And yet now you do. It is a love for people you did not choose. Kind of like your own biological family. You don't choose them. It's the same with God's family. You don't choose these people. You didn't seek them out. And you don't love them naturally. These are not people that you would have naturally associated with. Well, some of them. But not all of them. And yet now you do. You love them. So you were brought to this God and this community by something that overcame all those other things, all those natural barriers. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So because of Jesus' love for us, because of what he did for us, now we love him, we love one another. So these are the two loves that define and mark us as disciples. So love for God and love for one another. Very clear, right? But why these two loves, right? Out of all the loves we could have, why these two loves? Well, I want to look at what Jesus said about these two loves in Mark's gospel. So we just read that earlier. But if you go back to that passage in Mark 12, Jesus was interacting with one of the scribes in Jerusalem. And, and, and through this interaction, we see Jesus basically fleshing out the primacy of loving God and others. And then the practice of it and then finally the power of it. So this is what we see. So first, the primacy of loving God and others. We see this in Mark 12. So in Mark 12, Jesus had already entered Jerusalem. So Palm Sunday already happened. He already came in riding on a donkey. They were saying, Hosanna, you know, praise the son of David. And then he is in Jerusalem now. This is the final week of his life before going to the cross. And while in Jerusalem, every day he would get up and go to the temple to teach. And while he was there, all these religious leaders and scribes, one after another, would show up and tested Jesus. They would have rapid-fire questions for Jesus. So they were trying to trap him. And kind of like a kung fu master, Jesus brilliantly deflected every single one. Right? He just, bam, 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 one after another. He deflected all these traps and answered every single question. And so while this is going on, there was one scribe who actually had a genuine heart. Not every scribe was evil. Not every scribe was trying to trap him. And while he watched Jesus doing this, he saw the brilliance of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus. And so he came up to Jesus with a real question. And so here was the question, verse 28. Rabbi, which commandment is the most important of all? Like, which one's the most important? And here was Jesus' answer, verse 29. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, in other words, that one God, right, the one God I just said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love that one God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So with this answer, Jesus immediately brought to light, what? The primacy of love, specifically loving God and neighbor. The primacy, when I say primacy, I'm talking about the, the number one importance of it, the number one significance of it. 
So when described as which commandment is the greatest, Jesus answered very directly with two love commandments. He gave two love commandments. There's no greater commandment than the command to love. Love God and love others. And Bible scholars say Jesus was the first to acknowledge both of these loves. Rabbis throughout the centuries before Jesus talked about both of them individually, separately. But Jesus was the first to acknowledge both of these love commands as summarizing the whole law of God. One Bible scholar said, although love of God and love of humanity were occasionally affirmed separately in Israel, there is no evidence that before Jesus they were ever combined. See, Jesus was the first to do it. He combined them. It does not appear that any rabbi before Jesus regarded love of God and neighbor as the center and sum of the law of God. So Jesus was the first to do it. And he is God. He knows what he's talking about. So there's no greater command in the whole Bible than to love God with everything we are and love others like we love ourselves. So Jesus put primacy on love. Okay, this is a truth that communicates very well today in our culture because it's all about love, right? And as shallow and misguided as their understanding is, our culture understands that, that nothing is greater than love. By the way, Christianity gave them that. Our secular culture today is just a gutted form of Christianity. Okay, why is it that we, we love the, the poor and the helpless and want to lift them up and the humble? Well, it's just a form of Christianity. They got it from Christianity. But to go deeper, why are the greatest commands in the Bible commands to love, though, right? Why did Jesus single out these two commands? Rabbi, what are the greatest commands? Love. Love God, love others. Okay, why? Why this command to love? Well, I believe Jesus put primacy on love because... What you love most defines who you are. Because that's the first reason I can think of from Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So why is the greatest commandment having to do with love? Because what you love most defines who you are. Here's another reason I can think of. What you love most drives how you live. Drives or directs how you live. Proverbs 4.23, Keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flowed the springs of life. And I believe what that verse is saying is, you need to guard your heart, and what you need to guard in your heart is what your heart loves. You need to guard and keep track of the loves in your heart. Why? Because what you love in your heart will drive you. It'll drive your life. For from it, your heart and its loves flow the springs of life. Is that clear? So based on what the Bible says, nothing determines who you are and where your life is headed more than what you love. That is what will shape your life. And so this means the quickest way to get to know somebody, whether on a blind date or at work or even here at church, is don't ask them like little trivial questions, but find out what they love most. So for example, even if they are Christians sitting in church, some people love most not God, but pleasure. Okay, we know this. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you love God the most. You might love God some, but a lot of people in church, they love pleasure the most. For others, it's money. Others, is respect. Others, it's themselves. Okay, others go through the motions of loving others. Why? Because they love, they love how it makes them feel. A lot of good works in the world are done like that. I'm not questioning every good work, but a lot of it. It just makes them feel good, so they want to go and serve those in hurricanes and bring food to the poor, and it just makes them feel good. Others make a show of loving others because they love the reputation it gives them. I love the way it makes me look, right? You know, recently I saw this article about people dropping off the homeless 
and people marginalized in society at the doorstep of very wealthy politicians. Did you guys hear that story? But there are actual buses that were being uh, brought in front of wealthy politicians and these marginalized people were dropped off right there. And the reason why this was happening is because these politicians were always talking about loving others, right? Especially the poor and the marginalized. Well, over time, people began to realize what they really love is what that kind of talk does for them, okay, more than those actual people. And so people got fed up with that. They're calling them out on that hypocrisy. And so now they're saying, okay, you love the poor and marginalized? Here's a bus full of them right in front of your house. How are you going to love them? Right? Show us. How are you going to love them? So people know. But what you love most in your heart is the real you. Okay, that's the real you. It's the real motivation that drives your life. And like these politicians, you can't hide that. Okay, you can't fake that. Maybe for a little bit, but then eventually it's going to come out. Okay, that is the real you in the depth of your heart. And so now, when it comes to our spiritual lives, what should matter most? Okay, what should matter most when it comes to spiritual life? For many, it's knowledge of God, knowing his word. And yes, that's very vital, but it goes deeper than that. Okay, what should matter most? For some, it's personal growth through practicing the spiritual disciplines. Again, very, uh, very important. We talked about that. But it goes deeper than that. For others, it's coming to church, serving, doing good works. Again, important, but it's deeper than that. When it comes to your spiritual life, what should matter most? Well, Jesus told us. What sums up all the commands of God in the Bible? What summarizes God's will for you, what he desires most for you? Well, it all comes down to what your heart loves most. Okay, that's what God cares about. That's what matters the most. What does your heart love the most? And Jesus is asking, do you love God the most? And do you love others second? So even the scribe, after hearing Jesus' answer, he said this in verse 33. To love God with all your heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Burnt offerings and sacrifices were things that God commanded Israelites to do in the Old Testament. This is how they worship God. This is how they exercise faith to receive forgiveness of sin. But this scribe got it. He's saying more than any of that stuff, more than even the religious activities that God commanded us to do, to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself is much more. That's what it says here, literally, much more than all these offerings and sacrifices. He got it. But why? Why is it much more? Because when you truly love God and others, you are fulfilling all the commands in Scripture from the bottom of your heart. Why? Because that's the real you. Who you really are, and you can't fake this. Okay, you can maybe, maybe fake it in front of people for a little bit, but God sees it, and eventually it's going to come out. Again, like those politicians. That's the real you. That's the real you. And so when you truly love God and others, you are from the bottom of the, your heart, the real you, fulfilling scripture, all the commands of God. The real you is obeying God. Okay, not just your outward behavior, like making offerings, sacrifices, coming to church, even serving, even singing on the praise team. Those things are good. But if you truly love God in your heart and love others, that is the real you doing that. And this love for God and others will also drive your life in the direction God wants. It will direct your life. 
in the direction God wants. So what am I saying? There's primacy. Okay, this is the most important. The two love commandments. Again, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So here's a question. What do you love most in your heart? Do you do an inventory of your heart? Are you aware of your heart? See, I know a lot of us, we, we care about the Bible. You know, you come to promise, hopefully. <laughs> you know, you realize, like, we care about the scriptures here. We teach it. We want to learn it. And people are focused on that. And that's good. But I would say even beyond that, though, are you aware of what is in your heart? What do you love most in your heart? And do you guard your heart? Or do you just let it drift towards things and, and loves here and there? Whatever comes along. Oh, I love this today. Next week, I love this. Oh, my heart's all about this. Or are you constantly guarding it? Are you aware of it? And are you repenting of the things that you love more than God? Okay, the things that draw you away from loving others. So, why? It's prime, it's prime, right? This is primacy. But how do you actually love God and others? Well, now we come to our practice. This is our second point. Practicing the love of God and others. Now, both of these are huge topics. I've given an entire sermon series on each of these topics of loving God and others. But let me highlight a few ways we can begin to do this from Mark 12. But look at Mark 12, 29. Jesus answered, the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So first, Jesus said we are to love the one and only God with what? All of our heart, and then what? All of our soul, and then what? All of our minds, and then what? All of our strength. So four times, what did he repeat? All, right? All, all, all. And these four alls are connected to the different faculties that make up the real us. Okay, this is what these different things are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Bible scholars, they have disagreements on what exactly the definitions are for these different things, so they have different takes on them. But these are clearly different distinct parts of a human being. But some see the heart, soul, and mind as almost the same thing. They're all the same thing. They're synonyms. And then they see strength as the physical body. So they see it basically as the heart and the body. Others, they see the heart as your core, okay, the command center, the real you, and the real um, issue, the soul, mind, and strength are different parts of the heart. So these other things are just parts of your heart. So the soul is your emotions, your mind is your intellect, your strength is your will. And as these things are dynamically interacting within you, that forms your heart. Okay, that's your core. So some people see it like that. And I probably lean in that direction. So these are some different takes on these different parts. But however you define them, Jesus is clear. We are to love God with all of these things. Okay, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, it's total. Okay, whatever is within us. However you chop up the human being, we are to love God with all of it. We are never commanded to love others with all we are, but we are commanded to love God with everything we are. So when it comes to the question of what do you love the most, the answer is always God. Okay, it's not God and others. It's not something else. It's just God. We must love God the most. 
with all that we are. There is no 99% love for God or loving God with 99% of who we are. No, it must be total. You know, recently I've been doing a lot of pre-marital counseling. It's actually more post-marital counseling. So a lot of my examples, my thoughts are in marriage counseling. But I remember talking to a couple recently about how marriage is like a large house with a lot of different rooms. And once you get married, no room in that house should be off limits to your spouse. But your spouse should have a key that opens up every single room in that house. Okay, that's what marriage is. Well, if you were to take that analogy to you and God, it's the same. But if your heart is like a large house with many rooms, there should be no room in your heart that is off limits to God. God should have the key to every single room in your heart. And not every Christian is like that. A lot of Christians aren't like that. But you know, but there's always that one part of my heart. You know what? I, I, I worship God. I believe in God. I go to church. I try to follow him. But no, not that part. No, God. Not that part. Okay, that emotional affair that I'm having? No, not that. Okay, that, that habitual sin that I like to do on the weekends? No, not that, God. Right, that pride that people have pointed out has caused conflict in my life? No, I'm going to hold on to my pride. Right, we all have areas in our hearts like that. But when it comes to loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all these other faculties, okay, what is a practical result of that? You give him the key, amen? You give him the key. So have you given him the key to all of your heart? And why is this so important? Well, remember, what we love most has a greater impact on our lives. Right? It defines who you are. It drives where your life will go. And so nothing will produce the greatest good in our lives than to love God the most by giving him that key to all of our heart. Nothing will bless your life the most. To love God, this being, the greatest, most glorious, most supreme being, who's the very definition of love and goodness. To give him the key. Nothing will bless your life more than that. He is worthy to be loved the most. And as you decide to love him truly with all of your heart, you gave him the key to every room, then you will be blessed the most. See, this is so important. But in contrast, if God does not have access to all of your heart, if there are certain rooms in your heart where he doesn't have access, now, of course, he can go in there. Of course, he can. But you, in your mind, you haven't given him access then that means there is something else you have given your heart to. There is something else that you love the most. Because the human heart will always love something the most. That's how we were created. We were created to worship. You will always worship something. And if it's not the one true God, like Jesus said, then it will be a substitute God. It will be a counterfeit God. Many of you guys have heard this. But something that has taken God's place in your heart, that is what you have given access to all of your heart. As some like to say it, it's a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. And your love for that other God will begin to devastate your life. This is why it's so important. you got to give that key to the entirety of your heart to God, the one true God. Because if you don't, then somebody else has it, and it will begin to devastate your life. Why? Because remember, again, what you love most defines who you are. See, what you love in your heart is so critical. This is not a trivial thing. It is central. That's why the Bible keeps coming back to it. It'll define who you are. And worshiping a counterfeit God means you are no longer defined by God, the one true God's perfect goodness. You're not defined by that. You're not defined by his gracious love for you. But rather, now you are being defined by something fickle and changing. A God that has no concern for you. A God that's going to use you and manipulate you. 
For example, people's opinions. For some people, that's their God. You know, in the last few years, more and more studies have been coming out on the dangers of social media. I mean, we're aware of this, right? A lot of studies are being done. There was one in particular in 2021. It was published in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence. But this study found that while social media use has had a minimal impact on boys' risk of suicide, so boys weren't at risk as much, but girls who use social media for at least two hours a day from the age of 13 years old onward, they had a higher clinical risk of suicide than adults, much higher. Furthermore, findings from a population-based study show a decline in mental health in the U.S. with a 37% increase in the likelihood of major depression among adolescents. And so that's all because of social media, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's not just a program on your computer. But the word idol doesn't appear in this article, but that's what's happening. These teenagers have taken a good thing like peer affirmation. Yeah, that's not bad. That's just society, right? Social interaction. But they've taken that good thing, and because of social media, it's become an ultimate thing. And so now what they love the most is not the one true God, as we're commanded to do, the one true God that will bless your life. But rather, what they love the most is peer affirmation, peer acceptance, you name it. And what's happening is devastating them. Right? It's destroying them. And so that's just one example. And it's not just teenagers, but all of us have our own counterfeit gods that have stolen our hearts. Your heart is stolen by it. It has a spell over you. You love it. That is the real you. And so, unless we turn from these things and give all of our hearts back to God, your life will begin to get devastated. So here I am again to encourage you, give God the key to all of your heart. Amen? Give him the key. Quit holding back and having certain rooms that are locked up and placing other gods there instead. Give him the key. And as we do, not only will you be blessed, but we will begin to bless others. We will bless others. And the reason why is because there is a direct and vital connection between loving God and loving others. So I said earlier, Jesus was the first to combine these two commands in such a direct way. Other teachers, rabbis, mentioned these two here and there, but Jesus combined them directly. And later, the New Testament followed. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, let us also love one another. Or we also ought to love one another. So the New Testament connects them as well. So as our hearts become filled with God's love through Jesus Christ, you know what will happen? It will naturally begin to spill over. That's how you know you're filled with God's love. It just spills over. Now, I remember many years ago, a brother at our church, he actually recently passed away. I went to his funeral. But he began this ministry to people living on the streets. And this is the way it happened, but I remember him sharing the story. But he just went out there with this conviction, I want to minister to people on the streets. And, you know, he did it, you know, with the blessing of our church. And he said he went out there and he met this one guy one time, this one day. He was just kind of standing there along the street. And he shared the gospel with him. He found out he was already a believer, but he really connected well with this guy. And that guy that he met began to experience the love of Christ. He began to experience God in a very tangible way. He received the Bible. He received the meal, received the prayer. Now here's this guy showing up every day to talk to you know, him about Jesus and about God. And then that person on the street got filled with God's love. And then it's amazing. 
But then the next week, he went out and grabbed two more people, and he showed up. And then they got filled with God's love. And then that guy on the street, the first guy, went out again. And then he brought more people and then more people. And then within a few weeks, there were at least a dozen or more people gathering in a small park together. And that's how that ministry got launched. And I remember eventually there were even 20, 25 people from the streets joining us in service. I remember they would go to the bathroom before service and they would wash up. They were very respectful. They would literally take a bath in our bathroom before coming into the service. I remember that was happening. But why? All because one person received the love of God and then it began to spill over. And so he couldn't keep it. He just had to go and bring others and bring others and bring others. So receiving the love of God always spills out onto others. That's how you know you've been filled with God's love. So the love of God it removes the barriers that we have from loving others. Okay, that's why it begins to spill over. The love of God removes those barriers, like being overly focused on our, on our own problems, on ourselves. Because so many of us, the reason why we don't love other people is because you don't see other people. Every day you wake up and you're just focused on yourself. Even when you come to church, it's just all about you, right? What am I going to get out of the message? What am I going to get when I interact with other people? What are they going to do for me? And it's all about just ourselves. And so we don't see other people. For others, it's feeling powerless. What can I do? Right? How can I make a difference? For others, we judge people. You know, I remember one time I was at Costco, and there was this one, uh, it looked like a homeless person, and he was kind of walking towards this other man. It was kind of at a distance. And then as soon as that man took a few steps, this man, this other man who just shopped at Costco said, Go away! Right? It was so like, whoa. It's like, go away, Right? And I know, I, I understand that. I hate to say this, but even that kind of judgmentalism was in my heart at different points. And I, I felt that before. It's like, oh, gosh, please go away. Right? I, I can't deal with this right now. And besides, like, what, why are you begging for money, right? Well, what removes these barriers is the love of God. Right? Because God, he came to us. He wasn't overly focused on himself. Right? He didn't pronounce judgment on us, but rather he laid down his life for us. Right? He was powerless, and through that powerlessness, he overcame. He reached us. And so he overcame all those barriers. So God's love will do that, but God's love will also overcome our apathy. And it will motivate us to do something for God. Why? Because he's done everything for us. And so this is great motivation, incredible motivation. The Bible says the love of Christ compels us. If you're apathetic, if you struggle to love others, then you got to let the love of God fill you and compel you. Why? Because look at what he did for you. How do you keep that for yourself? Like that man that was on the street, once he received the love of God, he's like, how can I keep this to myself? He went and got his buddies. Every week he brought more people. And so this is how the love of God begins to spill over onto others. And if people are not doing that, if they are not reaching out to others in love, And here's the reason why, brothers and sisters, you are not filled with God's love. Neither am I. That's the answer. The reason why we are so self-absorbed and we cannot love others and we are not loving others is because we are not filled with God's love. So loving God and loving others are directly connected. It's very important we understand that. It keeps also our love from becoming abstract. This kind of vague love. Okay, I, I just love, right? I love God and I'm a person of love and I love people. I try to do that. It keeps her from being abstract. It also keeps her becoming humanistic. 
Right? It's all about, oh, yeah, loving my neighbor, but then we forget it's really starting with loving God. You know, one Bible commentator wrote, love of neighbor is the chief means of loving God and is received as love of God. Likewise, love of God expresses itself in love of neighbor. Jesus' answer avoids the danger of mysticism, which results in a detached and disembodied love of God. Oh, yeah, it's just me and Jesus. I just love God, right? I love the world. I love God. It, it keeps it from becoming like that. If you realize, no, I got to love others as well in practical ways. Jesus' answer avoids the danger of mysticism as well as the danger of humanism, which acts towards humanity without reference to God and without the understanding that human beings are inviolable creatures of God. And a lot of people in the world, they're like that. Oh, I love people, right? It's all about love, right? I just love people. And yet they never speak truth. They never truly love them in the way they need. Why? Because they don't have love for God. And so when you keep these two things connected, you avoid both. It's neither abstract, mystical, nor is it humanistic but you will truly love. Okay, this is how we practice love as disciples. We must love God the most, and everything he loves, we love, including truth. How many of you guys know that the person who loves you the most speaks the most truth to you? Okay, this is why, who speaks the most truth to you? Your parents, right? <laughs> okay, who's the only person in the world who's going to tell you, you know what, that haircut is ugly. I'm so sorry, but that's ugly. Right, your breath stings. I remember my mom used to tell me that when I was growing up. It's like, Roy, your breath stings today. Go brush your teeth. Okay, well, why do parents do that? Because they love you the most. And that is not what is happening in today's culture in the name of love. They do not speak the most truth to you. But the person who loves you the most speaks the most truth. And you would know that if you keep these two loves connected. Love for God and everything he loves, his truth, and love for others. So we must do that. We must always keep these things connected. And so as we love God the most and everything he loves, then we will begin to love others in the way they truly need. We will love others. So that's the way we practice. And then finally, we're going to close with this. But their power, their power. Look at Mark 12, 31. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, the scribe, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now here, I think this is pointing to the power of where we can now truly have the power to love. And it's a little bit subtle, okay? You you need to kind of follow me here. But this whole interaction with the scribe, it ends not with the commandments. Oh yeah, the commandments, right? What's the greatest commandment? Here are the greatest commandments. Yay, we know the commandments. But rather, it ends with this kind of subtle finger pointing straight at Jesus. It It always ends with Jesus. But rather than Jesus saying, You knowing these commandments makes you close to the kingdom of God. What happened here? Jesus himself pronounced in a very authoritative way. So he actually goes beyond the commandments, beyond the law of God, beyond the word of God. Jesus himself, with no reference to anything else, he said, I'm telling you, you are close to the kingdom of God. It was Jesus himself saying that. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Of God. So here, everything is pointing back to Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the reason why this man is going to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, he's the reason why he is close to the kingdom of God. Not because he knew these commandments. Okay, they're important. But because he came to Jesus and because he listened to what Jesus said and agreed, he's close to the kingdom of God. It's all Jesus. 
And because this ends with the finger pointing at Jesus, this is also how we're going to actually obey those commandments. How are we going to love God and love others? It's because of Jesus. Right? He's the one who's going to enable us to love God and love others. And we already read this passage, but this is so clear in 1 John 4. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us through Jesus, we also ought to love one another. So is that clear? Where do we get the power to love God and love others? If Today, you're sitting here, you're like, you know, Roy, everything you said sounds good, but I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to love God because I don't. I don't know how to love others. Well, the answer is Jesus. Right? It takes God to love God. I've said that before in the past. But it takes God to love God. It takes Jesus and what he did for you to love God. You must understand that. You know, I heard this in a beautiful sermon recently. But do you know that in Isaiah 49, 16, God told the Israelites, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And I never really understood what that meant. But this one pastor really fleshed it out. It was beautiful. But what that was referring to is in ancient times when a slave became committed to the master, right? A servant was very committed to the master, loved the master. One way he would show his commitment and loyalty and love is he would get the tattoo, the name of the master tattooed on his body, on his arm or somewhere on his thigh. He would get a tattoo. But what this pastor said is, but here God flipped it. Because in ancient times, a master never got a tattoo of the servant on his body. Never. That never happened. It was always the other way around. The slave got a tattoo of the master's name. But here in Isaiah 49, God says, amazingly, I have tattooed your name on my hands. So God, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm committed to you. Right? I belong to you. I I love you. Completely flipped it. And the word there in Isaiah 49, engraved, is more than tattoo. Yes, it's referring to that, but it's more than that. But in the Hebrew, it's actually talking about something being chiseled. Chiseled, like, for example, a hammer and nail. And so do you see the reference here? God is saying prophetically through Isaiah, I love you and I'm so committed to you, I have not only tattooed your name on the palm of my hand, I have chiseled it with a hammer and nail. You see where this is going. And so now fast forward to now Jesus, he came, and then he died on the cross, and then after he rose again, what did he say to the disciples? What did he say to doubting Thomas? Come, feel the nail prints in my palms, right? As what? As evidence of my love for you. I did this for you. I'm not a ghost. I came back to life. This is real. I did it for you. And so do you see that? Do you see the love of God? This is the love of God. See, you need to understand that. You need to understand that your name has been engraved, chiseled with a hammer and nail on the palms of God's hand. He has, a big, he has very big hands. All of our names are there. But you need to understand that. Okay, that, that is what's going to compel you to begin to now follow and obey these commandments. You know, I hesitate to close a sermon with an with a old Korean fable, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> but my mom used to tell this to me. I don't know why. Um, I think she was trying to say something to me. But it's this fable of this frog and his mama frog. You guys, okay, some of you guys know something, but some of you guys are, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's basically, my mom used to tell this to me. I don't know why. I think she's trying to say something to me. But, but this frog was very, very disobedient and would never listen to the mama frog. And the mama frog, whenever she would say, do this, son, he would do the opposite, the exact opposite. And then one day, the mama frog got very sick, and she was old, and she was about to die. 
And knowing that she had a very disobedient son, she told the, ba- the sun frog, son, when I die, I want you to bury me in the river. Because her wish was really to be buried on land, in the mountain, right? And she said that because she's like, he's going to disobey me. She, he's going to do the opposite, and that's what I really want. But then after the mama frog finally died, that son saw the body of the mom and then realized for the first time what she did for, for him. Her whole life, all the sacrifice, all the things that she gave up for him. And now she died, right? So then for the first time, that frog said, you know what? I'm going to obey her. <laughs> so rather than bury her in the mountain, which she really wanted, he put her into the river. And so I don't know why my mom always told me that story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyway, I grew up hearing that story. But even just through that, that fable, you can see how once you come to realize what God has done for you, you see his lifeless body. You see how his hands, he the engravings on his hands for you, his death for you. Then you'll say, you know what? I'm going to do it. I will do what you want. I will love you with all of my heart, and I will love others as I love myself. Amen? And then your life will begin to change. This is how people will know you are his disciple. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord. Let's bow our heads. But God is so good. Is it all about love? Yes, it is, but not in the way the culture says. But it is a holy, bloody, sacrificial, infinitely strong love that will never let you go. Stamped with the very nails of the cross, driven into the palms of Jesus' hands, Okay, that's the love we're talking about. And once that love begins to fill your heart, it will spill over to others. See, you don't try to love others by mustering up your willpower. I say that a lot in our church. It's not about your willpower. But it's Christ's love for you that compels you. So let's just come before him, and just for a few moments, let's just receive his love. You can ask him directly, God, please pour your love into my heart by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5, so that I can now begin to love you with all of my heart and love others.